You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, Chief of Neurology at William W. Backus Hospital. How is the CDC monitoring neurologic complications from the H1N1 vaccine? Joining us to discuss the 2009 influenza H1N1 vaccine as it relates to the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome is Dr. James Savar, neuroepidemiologist in the Division of Viral and Rickettsial Diseases at the National Center for Infectious Diseases and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome to the show, Dr. Savar. Happy to be here. Let's briefly review for everyone what the clinical presentation of Guillain-Barre syndrome looks like. Well, Guillain-Barre syndrome is considered to be an inflammatory polyradiculoneuropathy, in other words, an inflammatory condition of the nerve roots and the peripheral nerves. Clinically, people with Guillain-Barre syndrome will typically develop acute to subacute weakness in the, in the limbs and sometimes in the cranial nerve innervated muscles. In the worst cases, the innervation to the muscles of breathing can become involved as well and result in respiratory failure. Most cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome are monophasic. In other words, they occur, they get worse, and then generally get better. And most patients experience partial or full recovery, although in some cases, persistent weakness and death can occur. Do we tend to see some seasonal variation in the frequency of Guillain-Barre syndrome? There have been a number of different studies looking at this possibility, primarily because in many cases, if not most cases, Guillain-Barre syndrome is associated with some sort of an antecedent event that is thought to sort of trigger the immune system, if you will. Nearly 70% of people experiencing Guillain-Barre syndrome will report some sort of an illness an influenza-like illness or a gastrointestinal illness or some sort of immunization in the weeks before the, the onset of their illness. There have, as I, as I said, there have been several studies that have looked at seasonal variation in Guillain-Barre syndrome, and for the most part, most studies have not suggested any significant variation based upon season. Can you provide some history as to what happened in relation to the swine flu vaccination program in 1976 and the potential increased incidence of Guillain-Barre syndrome? Well, back in 1976, there was the emergence of apparent human-to-human transmission of a swine origin influenza virus. Now, there hadn't been a swine origin influenza virus that had been circulating for many, many years. And the fact that this particular virus did appear to be able to be spread from person to person was concerning and raised the concern about an emerging pandemic. And so in rapid fashion, a decision was made to try to vaccinate the entire U.S. civilian and military population against this particular swine origin H1N1 influenza virus. Now, for the most part, the outbreak of influenza disease never occurred. There were fewer than 200 total cases, all limited to a military base in New Jersey. However, in the course of monitoring for adverse events in the setting of the vaccination, there were several small clusters, if you will, of Guillain-Barre syndrome observed. 
And based upon these clusters, there was a more sort of formal assessment of Guillain-Barre syndrome occurring during the vaccination campaign. And what was found is that there was a small but statistically significant increase in the risk of developing Guillain-Barre syndrome in the six weeks following the swine flu vaccine. And on this basis, the vaccination campaign was actually halted in December of that year. Now, there have been a number of different reassessments and reanalyses of these data. And for the most part, all do seem to suggest that, you know, there is this very small but a statistically significant increase in risk in Guillain-Barre syndrome following that particular vaccine and amounting to about one additional case of Guillain-Barre syndrome per 100,000 recipients of the vaccine. Now, it's important to sort of mention we really don't know why this association exists. I mean, there are a number of different hypotheses, but for the most part, all we know is that statistically there did seem to be this increase in risk. All right, Jim, let's fast forward now to 2009. We have a new influenza outbreak, the H1N1 vaccine, uh, believed to be related to the previous swine flu in some way. Are we expecting an increased risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and is that why we're in the midst of a surveillance program? Uh, What can you share with our listeners? First of all, just to clarify something, really the only relationship that the current circulating influenza virus, the H1N1 virus, and the 1976 virus have is that both of them are in some part or to some extent of swine origin. From the standpoint of the genetics, the immunogenicity of the two viruses, they're much more different than they are similar. So I think that's important for listeners to keep in mind. Really, the relationship between these two viruses and thus the vaccines is pretty remote at best. The reason for sort of the increase or the focus on performing surveillance for Guillain-Barre syndrome in the setting of the vaccine is really out of an abundance of caution. The H1N1 vaccine is formulated and manufactured exactly the same as the seasonal influenza vaccines that people have been receiving year after year. And we've really seen no suggestion that there's any increase in risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome following seasonal influenza vaccines. So again, the campaign to monitor for Guillain-Barre syndrome is really, for the most part, based out of, again, an abundance of caution. We're not expecting to see any particular association. Can you tell us a little bit about the scope of the program you're engaged in now to really find these cases as they emerge? Well, as you can imagine, it's somewhat difficult to do surveillance for an illness such as Guillain-Barre syndrome on a national scale. The approach that CDC has taken is sort of a multifaceted approach. The sort of the first thing that I would like to sort of emphasize to listeners is the use of what's called the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS. Now, this is a passive surveillance system for adverse events following various vaccines. It's conducted or run jointly by the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration and basically solicits reports of any clinical events of concern 
that occur following vaccinations, not just H1N1, but essentially any vaccine. If a physician or even a patient, I mean, anybody can report to VAERS, if a physician or anybody suspects that a clinical event has occurred following a vaccine, they can file a report to VAERS, collect some clinical information, some demographic information. And this is one way that we hope to keep tabs on whether there is a, an unexpected increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome or, for that matter, any other adverse event following H1N1. Now, because VAERS is a passive surveillance system, it has limitations. The quality of reports is sometimes not complete, and there is limitations in terms of the amount of data that is collected. So one of the additional things that we're doing is basically active surveillance for cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And we're conducting this in what are called the Emerging Infections Program sites. Now, this is a collaboration between CDC and various state and local health departments that represents several geographically diverse areas of the country, encompassing a population of about 50 million. And in these areas, we are actually going out to neurologists and other practitioners and inquiring about any cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome that they may have diagnosed. And we're collecting information both on Guillain-Barre syndrome patients who have received vaccine as well as those who have not. And that way, we can kind of compare the occurrence of Guillain-Barre syndrome following the H1N1 vaccine with those that have not received the vaccine and see if there's any apparent increase in risk. Those are the two sort of major surveillance activities. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And joining us to discuss the 2009 influenza H1N1 vaccine as it relates to any risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome is Dr. James Savar from the CDC. We were talking a little bit about certain states where there's some heightened surveillance going on. Can you tell us why you chose those states? I practice in one of them here in Connecticut. Why were we chosen? Well, again, the Emerging Infections Program, which, by the way, entails essentially 10 states and sites throughout the country, this is an ongoing program that CDC runs to facilitate the detection and identification of various emerging infectious diseases. It's been ongoing for a number of years and is used to look at, for instance, the emergence of antimicrobial resistance. So there are a number of different projects that are conducted. We decided to engage the Emerging Infections Program because it does represent a diverse geographic and population scope of the United States and provides a significant or a sufficient number of people under surveillance to allow for detection of any risk if there actually would be one. I realize this has been a huge collaboration with the American Academy of Neurology and working with the emerging infections, but are there other neurologic complications neurologists should be on the lookout for in patients who have either received the vaccination or have gone through H1N1? Well, and again, we are not expecting that we're going to see any increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome or, for that matter, any other neurologic event following 
H1N1 vaccine. And again, this is really being done out of an abundance of caution. There are other neurologic illnesses that have been in in some cases reported to occur following various vaccinations, including so-called acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or ADEM, transverse myelitis, seizures, encephalopathy. And now keeping in mind that in nearly all of these cases, an association with the vaccine is really based upon a temporal relationship. In other words, somebody receives a vaccine and then several days or weeks later, you know, comes down with one of these inflammatory illnesses. And based upon that temporal relationship, you know, an association with the vaccine is made. In most, if not all cases, a causal association with the virus is there's a lack of evidence for that. However, we would encourage physicians to pay attention or be vigilant for these various neurologic illnesses, again, as well as other significant clinical events, such as anaphylaxis or myocarditis, that might occur following H1N1 or any other vaccine. From a practical standpoint, what should a physician do if they suspect a a case of Guillain-Barre or other complication from the vaccine, from the H1N1 vaccine, Dr. Savar? Well, first and foremost is a completion of that Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, report. That would be extremely important. And how would they get that? There are a number of ways to complete a VAERS report. The simplest is probably online, and if you go to the CDC website, there's a direct link to an online VAERS report. One can also request a sort of a paper form that can be faxed in to VAERS as well. So we should be on the lookout for these, but in summary, not expect an awful lot of complication from the vaccination is what I think we're getting out there. That's correct. You know, we're encouraging clinicians to be vigilant, to have a low index of suspicion. But again, we are not expecting to see any increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome or for that matter, any particular adverse event following this vaccine. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. James Savar, neuroepidemiologist in the Division of Viral and Rickettsial Diseases at the National Center for Infectious Diseases and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you for coming on and being a guest, Dr. Savar. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.